Good morning. How are we today? If you're a guest with us, appreciate you joining us. If you're joining us online, appreciate that as well. Uh, we are doing the services live online, so if you know anybody that wants to tune in or somebody that can't be here on a Sunday, uh, be sure and direct them to the website. There's opportunity to do that. Um, yeah, technology is helpful sometimes, so appreciate that. Are we good? You guys are a little more alive than the first service, huh? To give, another, give a point to the second service. They're in the lead right now. Well, maybe I'm just more awake than I was the first service. Let's pray. Lord, we know by your word that we are your temple. We are the place you reside. Your spirit is in us. And Father, I pray that right now your spirit would stir in every heart in this room to receive from the scripture and to hear your heart through it, to be with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We, uh, I talked a couple weeks ago uh, about 2 Chronicles chapter 7, and we, it's just one of those things where in a crazy moment in time when people are struggling, often this scripture comes up in conversation in the Christian circles. And uh, first, uh, sorry, Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. When times get tough in people's lives, they start to take inventory. And I hope you're taking inventory of your spiritual life in these days. I hope you're stopping and thinking about the things that you believe and the things that you say and why you believe what you believe. Or is there substance to the reason you believe the things that you believe? Do you have hope in the midst of tough situations? Uh, if it gets much worse than this, how are you going to handle it? We've got all these things start coming to our mind, and it, it's almost overwhelming at times. I just, this last week, I, I finally hit this point where I'm like, yeah, this is starting to grate on me a little bit. And uh, yeah, we have those moments, don't we? And we start to ask tough questions and think about things. God, what are you trying to say? What are you doing in this season? We know that you're on the throne and you oversee all things and that you have purpose in all things. And so what is it? And we start to think about this and, and this, this passage where God's saying, if, if bad stuff is going on, if my people will do these things, I will hear them. And I want to focus in specifically on that phrase in there, seek my face. I touched on it a little bit a couple of weeks ago when I was talking about this. We talked about being humble, which no one likes to be humble, but we got to do it. We got to pray. We got to seek his face. We got to turn from our wicked ways, meaning we have to ask ourselves the question, are there wicked ways? Are we out of alignment with God in some things? What are they? But this week I want to focus in particularly on that phrase, seek my face. It isn't something that we would say or use in our everyday language. Um, you know, my kids don't come and ask me, hey, can I go over to Joe's house? And I say, well, seek the face of your mother, and uh, then maybe she'll give you an answer. We don't use that language. It's very uh, Christianese if we were. So we have to talk about what does it mean to seek my face? What's God saying when he says, seek my face? I want to dig deeper into that. Psalm 27, verses 7 and 8. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Sometimes when we read the Psalms, we disconnect from the emotion of it. But think about this. Do you cry out to God? Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. When we get desperate, we call out to God. We cry out to God. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, 
do I seek? David was responding to this prompting of God. God saying, seek my face. And David says, yes, Lord, my heart says to you, I will seek your face. And I hope that today that will be your answer. Because God is calling you to seek his face. And I hope something in your heart says, yes, Lord, I will seek your face. But what does it mean to seek his face? Let's talk about the word face. Uh, You know, whenever we're dissecting a passage of scripture, we look at the language it was written in and maybe see if we can gain a greater understanding of what the original author was saying to the original reader, which is lesson number one on Bible interpretation. The Hebrew word for this is panim. It's panim, and it's translated face. Uh, It's translated, actually, it's translated before more than anything in the Bible. Face, second of all, presence, I think, is third. So if you think of these three words, face and presence and before, you do this thing where you come before the king in his presence, you're face to face, this whole idea of having audience with, being with in a very real and attentive way. If my people will seek my presence, if they will seek to be before me and be face to face with me. So God is challenging us to seek him out personally, that we would be face-to-face with him in some way, in his presence, or have audience with. You know, in languages, words don't always translate real well. When we think of the word face, we just think of our face, but we actually use that word in a similar way. I need to face my fears. I need to face my past. I need to go home and face my dad after I put that dent in his car. You know, those kinds of things we got to come face-to-face with. And deal with. And so, even though it literally means face, it also is used with the idea of other things as well. So, I think we can understand that pretty easily what it means to seek the face of God. So, it's not like we're trying to imagine what He looks like, we're trying to actually be in His presence in a way that we sense who He is and understand. I talked about it uh, being faced, when you're face to face with someone, you can look into their eyes. I want to be so face to face with God that I can smell His beard oil, I said a couple weeks ago, right? Because God has a beard, doesn't He? All the pictures say He does. And beard oil is in, so He must have some of that, I'm guessing. I want to be that close to God. Why? So I can see the look in His eye. You know, we talk about the eyes being the window to the soul, right? When you're looking into someone's eyes, it's uncomfortable. If I just walked up to Mr. Helseth right now and gazed deeply into his eyes, it would get awkward. (laughs) Why? When we're looking at someone, because even if I'm talking to somebody, I kind of want to glance away here and there because it's, it's intimate to look into someone's face intently. It's very close. You feel close. There's a connection there. And so you... You, you, you can see so much about a person in their eyes. And if their eyes are, you know, we're actually learning to depend on looking into people's eyes a little more these days, aren't we? Because we can't see their mouth and if they're smiling or not. So we look at their eyes. And we know about them because we're looking at their face. God wants us to look into his eyes, his face, have audience with him, know what he's saying to us, how he's saying it, what his attitude is, what his tone is. But we can't do that by just reading words on a page. It's like text messaging. It doesn't really work, does it? Now, some of you are have got to be the most energetic, joyful people in the world because every text you send me has exclamation marks in it. So I know that you must be a very in a good mood and very excited about whatever you're sending me because you add a bunch of exclamation marks. 
And people like me kind of roll our eyes and we give you a one-word answer. My wife gets annoyed with me. My staff, I think, gets a little uncomfortable because of one-word answers. And I don't, I don't like texting that much. I don't like trying to come up with some emotion to try and inject in my text. I want you to just trust me. This is the facts. Here they are. If, if we need to talk face-to-face or talk over the phone, then we can talk the emotional side of things. But let's just keep it business over text, okay? That's how I feel about text. Emails are the same way. But I've taken cues and I've gotten better at it. Thank God for the emojis, right? So I can lie to you and put a smiley face at the end. We can't, we can't see that emotion when we're not face-to-face. And when we read the word, when we read the scripture, it could be just text to us. And we just try and draw off of it as just raw information. But we need to look in the face of the one who wrote it and spoke it. We need to hear his tone. We need to have a relationship so that we really know what he said and what he's saying. God wants us to seek his face, to be with him, to have audience with him. We know that God is everywhere. It's like, how do you seek the presence of God? He's here, and he's here, and he's there, and he's everywhere. He's omnipresent, we would say. Part of our theology, God is everywhere. One of the quotes I ran into this week that I really liked, it says, God is imminent because he's transcendent. He's everywhere because he's over everything. He's all over. Whenever we try and describe something or think about it, we're limited by a vocabulary and imagination that's confined to the boundaries of creation itself. But God is even outside of those boundaries. I can't think of things outside of time. You know, they, they will probably always make movies about time travel because there will always be some interesting thought or scenario that maybe you can imagine. But I can't imagine the absence of time. I can't even think that way, but God is outside of time. He's bigger than time. He's bigger than space and mass and the physical realm and all these kind of things. He's transcendent. He's in everything. He's everywhere all the time. So how do I seek his presence? Well, God does this amazing thing, even though he's all over. And when he says, seek my face, well, what am I looking for? You're right here, right? And I think that's where it begins It starts with acknowledging that he's here. By you speaking the words and making the statement, God, I know you're here right now. I'm acknowledging your presence. And God does amazing things. He manifests his presence. What does that mean? It means he makes himself able to be known and seen. It's when we experience God. When it goes beyond just some theology and it actually becomes something that we sense. So, you know, sometimes we limit the presence of God to Holy Ghost goosebumps, right? The worship team was really good and I got goosebumps, therefore it must have been the presence of God. But it's so much more than that. God has been manifesting his presence to his people in different ways since the beginning. But let's talk about this omnipresence thing for a second. Where can I go to to escape your spirit? This is Psalm 139. Where can I flee from your presence? I ascend to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle by the farthest sea, even there your hand will guide me. You cannot get away from God. He is everywhere. And we have to realize that. But he's actually calling us to something deeper. It's more than just knowing that he's there. He wants us to seek him out. 
He wants us to pursue him. He wants relationship with his people. He wants to be face to face. Jonah ran from God, didn't he? Jonah and the, uh, the prophet and God told him to go to Nineveh because they were slapping each other with fish. And Jonah wanted to. That was a joke. Come on, veggie tales. But, but Jonah ran from God and he got swallowed by a fish. So moral of the story, don't run from God or you get swallowed by a giant fish. Jonah couldn't run from God, could he? You can't get away from God. I think Jonah knew that. I think he was just avoiding his responsibility. They knew you couldn't get away from God. But we want to experience God. We want to sense him. We want to hear him. Like when we talk about hearing from God, I think people immediately think of this thundering voice from heaven, which is possible. But when we're talking about hearing from God, we're talking about the sense that he is pushing on something, pushing us in a direction or towards a thought or actions or those kinds of things. We sense that God wants us to go to church today. We sense that God maybe wants us to serve somebody or take action in certain areas or pray for somebody. That's, that's what we talk about. It's the voice of God. He's prompting us by his spirit because his spirit is inside of us. All of a sudden, he becomes very real. It's not just a theology that he's present. He's actually there doing something. He makes himself known. That's what the manifest presence of God is. So we want to seek God in a way that we actually can know him and experience him. And he's been revealing himself to us for many, many years, from the beginning. Theologically, we understand that God is omnipresent, but that fact is not readily discerned with the senses. It is a reality, but that reality may not seem relevant to the majority of people on the planet who have no sense of his presence. They feel that he is distant. Therefore, that feeling becomes their perceived reality. So this idea that God's not really present, I don't feel that he's present, and therefore he must be distant. He is not distant. But because we don't seek to know him or seek his face or look for him in life and what we're doing and the actions that we take, we feel that he's far away. I oftentimes have struggled in my life feeling like he's just at the steering wheel of the galaxy someplace far, far away, right? And he can't, yeah, I know who he is, but he don't know who I am. And like, I work for him, but I'm just a peon way down the ladder. There's no way that, that he knows who I am or that he would want to be with me. We tend, we want, we, we, we're tempted to believe those kind of things. If you're tempted to believe that, that God doesn't want relationship with you, remind yourself of what these scriptures say. He wants you to seek him out, to have audience with him, to be in his presence with him. Looking into his eyes, a relational thing. God, from cover to cover, the Bible, the whole redemption story is about the restoration of a relationship. The whole thing hinges on that motivation of God. See, when man rebelled against God, and we did, and we still do, in that rebellion, he would be just in wiping us out. That would be just for him to do that. But he chooses not to. And he makes a way for us to be restored and reconciled to him. He's looking for that relationship. Here's an uncomfortable analogy for you, but I've been thinking about it, and there's very little more painful than a broken marriage. And God often uses throughout the scripture that kind of language to describe his relationship with his people. Sometimes, I mean, I could read you some passages that would make you blush. They're that blunt. 
and uncomfortable to read. I'll spare you today. But he uses that analogy, and we have to reflect on that. We are the bride of Christ. We're the bride, and he is the groom, and he uses that language repeatedly in the scripture. But in this situation, the bride ran away with somebody else. She cheated on her husband. She's had multiple affairs with other men in this story. I mean, even to the point where the scripture calls it prostitution. The bride has prostituted herself. That's strong and uncomfortable language. And for anybody that's had any tough marital experiences, you know how painful this illustration and how it really sets the stage. But here's what happens. The husband, the groom, is seeking the restoration of his marriage. He's looking to be restored to his bride. God is looking to restore the divorce or the brokenness from his wife, so to speak. That's you and I. And we have to reflect on those things and go, well, first of all, that was, <laughs> we have to be repentant and recognize the things that have gotten in the way. But then we have some tough things to ask ourselves, and we all kind of do this in our relationship with God, just like the, the bride would when she's faced with the choice to return to her husband. Will he be angry with me? Will the groom be angry for the rest of his life? Can I really trust him? Can I trust him to love me again? Will he really love me? Or will he just dominate me and be angry the rest of our relationship? Is there any future fruitfulness in this relationship? Things that, you know, in a broken relationship, when people are wrestling with getting back together, those are the things that they face. And they, there's uncomfortableness. And we also, when seeking God and, and learning that he is the groom that's inviting us back into relationship with him, we start asking ourselves those questions. Will he really love me? Does he really care about me? Will he really talk to me? Is there really a future for me in Christ? Something that he's called me to do and to be? Yes! The scripture is very clear. That is true. And as our relationship with God is restored, there's a wonderful fruitfulness that comes to our lives. A journey of relationship this is about a relationship, and it's a relationship that has been going on since the beginning of time. God has been showing himself to his people. He showed up in a burning bush to Moses. He made his presence known. See, we're talking about the presence of God, seeking his face. God will make himself known to people that are seeking him, and sometimes even those that aren't. And he's done it in fantastic ways. He started talking, he had a donkey talk for him. There is hope, right? There's hope for you, all of us. He, he made himself visibly known when they saw tongues of fire descending upon the disciples in the day of Pentecost. That's the manifest presence of God. It was an experience with God that they had. They knew he was there. They knew he was real. They were waiting for him, and he came in power to them. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Who, the what? The three guys that got thrown in the fiery furnace, remember? And the king jumps up. Was it Nebuchadnezzar was the king? Jumps up and goes, there's four people in there. Nobody's getting burned. And the fourth one looks like the son of the gods. Some people think an angel. Some people think Christ himself. 
It was a manifestation. God made known that he was watching. He was present. He wants you and I to be seeking him out, looking for those. Okay, maybe we're not looking for a burning bush in the desert somewhere, but we're looking for God in our lives. We're seeking him out. When we're worshiping this morning, is it Annie over here? Worshiping. What's she doing? She's enjoying the presence of God. She sought him out and she's praising him. She can't see him, but she sought him out. She's looking for his face. She wants to have audience with God. She's experiencing the presence that God is here, and I get to experience something of it. God wants us to do that. He wants us to seek him out. In in the Garden of Eden, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. What what part in the scripture is this? Genesis chapter 3. This is right after Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. Sin was not a part of creation. What does this tell us? God was present. He walked with Adam and Eve. He talked with Adam and Eve. We don't really know what that looks like exactly, but they knew, and then when he showed up that night, or whatever it was, They hid from him. They resisted his presence. They didn't want to experience him because now they knew they were in the wrong. And they ran from God, so to speak. So from the very beginning, there's been this brokenness of relationship which God has been orchestrating that we come back to him. That we return to him. That we seek his face. To seek to be with him as it were in these days almost. That we would be experiencing God every day in our lives. That we would be listening for his quiet voice in our soul. That we would be reading his word and asking him, God, what are you saying? What's your tone? What, what do you want to communicate to me through your scripture about these things today? We're seeking to have audience with him. Not like put an envelope in the mail and send it off to heaven and hope he replies within the next six months. But he's right there. In, he's not only with you, he is in you. You are that temple. See, this whole Second Chronicles passage is when the temple was being dedicated. Anyway, God has been making his presence known in the tabernacle, in the temple, pillar of fire, cloud, all these things. And to be in the presence of God was a very powerful, important thing. And God was demonstrating the power of his presence. He was, he's without sin. He's above all things. And when people are sinful before him, they died. So there's two sons of Aaron. Aaron was the first priest of the old, old covenant law. When, when the Ten Commandments came, Aaron was the first priest of the Israelites. He had two sons who went into the presence of God. So in, in the Old Testament, the presence of God was one place. Not really, but he used that as an illustration to demonstrate that he was with his people. His presence sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ark, that thing. His presence sat right there underneath the wings of the cherubim on top of that the giant golden box. And that represented the presence of God. And once a year, the high priest would go into there and offer sacrifices for the people. Well, Aaron's two sons went in there illegally, and God struck them dead on the spot. Bam. His presence is powerful and important. Thank God we're not under that covenant anymore. When Jesus died on the cross and he shed his blood, the giant curtain that separated that holy of holy place, the presence of God from the rest of the world was isolated in there. Again, 
Not literally God was everywhere, but that's what God used to illustrate to mankind and to demonstrate. His presence was behind the curtain above the Ark of the Covenant. This curtain was ginormous and thick. And when Jesus died on the cross, in that moment, that curtain in the temple split from top to bottom. Telling us what? That we have access to the presence of God today. You as children of God have access to something that people back in those days would have died in. It was so powerful because of their sin. But because Jesus' blood ransomed you, bought you, so to speak, because you were born a second time, born again into a supernatural realm, you can access the presence of God. Jesus himself being the ultimate manifestation of God. God making himself man. And in the flesh, being with us and making that way and splitting that curtain. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Actually, let's go back just one to 416. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now is an era when man can run into the throne room of God. You don't run into the throne room of a king, you might lose your head, right? Back in the day, you didn't just burst into Solomon's court unannounced. And that was just a human king. Now you're talking about the king of the world and the universe and all things seen and unseen, the maker of all things, has invited you to bust into his throne room with confidence. Can you imagine that? You of all people. God is saying, I want you to do this. I, made, I died so that you could do this. I suffered on the cross and died so that you could bust into that throne room to get the grace and mercy you need from me. If you are ever in doubt that God wants a relationship with you, think about these things. Think about what he's done in order for that to happen for you. It's so cool. Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews, let's go to the next one. The whole book of Hebrews, the author is, he's making a case to the Jewish people about why Jesus is the superior, uh, has brought the superior covenant. And he's Drawing these illustrations from the Old Testament and making them relevant in a New Testament scenario. Great thing to study. Interesting. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, which they couldn't do. This is new information. Okay, They couldn't enter the holy places because the blood was never sufficient. But now the blood is sufficient and we can go into these holy places by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. Again, talking about the representation of the curtain being split. Jesus' body was broken, opening us up to the presence of God. And since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near. You are invited to draw near to God, to seek his face, to seek his presence, to have audience with him with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Again, when the conscience is violated, it, it really makes the relationship hard. You know, we go back to the whole marriage scenario. If there's, if there's just a guilt and an inability to heal, that affects the relationship. There's a lack of confidence. But when we can finally leave those things behind and we can go in confidence in our relationships, yeah, it's a good thing. It's a good day. When that stuff happens. The entire process of redemption is hinged to this idea. The whole thing. God wants to be with you. 
Hard to imagine sometimes. We think of stories like the prodigal son running away, squandering his inheritance. But when he came back to the father, what did the father do? The father ran to him. He put his ring on his finger. He put a robe around him. He welcomed him back with a big feast. There's lots of, lots of uh, good things we can draw out of that story, but that's such a wonderful picture of the, the son seeking the face of his father. He, didn't, he wasn't going to remember what his face looked like. He wanted to have audience with his father. He was going to offer to just work as one of the workers. But he gets to the father, and the father goes, no, you're my son. And that's what happens when we bring our lives back to God and we honor God with our lives. We're like that son who's come back to the father. But again, drawing attention to this idea that God is calling us to seek his face. I hope, I want to motivate us to have the impetus of David to pursue God, to look for him everywhere we can, to listen for his voice and feel his prompting whenever we can, to look for opportunities like when we pray for people to see healing, that, that is an invitation for God to manifest his presence. When we're praying for somebody else, you know, in, for anything, what are we doing? We're inviting God to manifest himself, to make himself known in the moment. We need to be passionate in pursuing these things like David was. He wanted to be with God. He said it a couple times in his writings. Psalm 84 verse 10, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I could do all kinds of things. I could go all over the planet. I could do all this stuff. Nothing is like being with God. Nothing is like being a part of his household. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. In other words, I'd rather have a lowly position in the house of God than thrive in the tents of the wicked. Right? He wants to be with God, and he expresses very passionately. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. Gaze, inquire. Those are relational. Those are connective words. This is what God is inviting us to and what David was passionate about. David was so passionate about the presence of God that he had that Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God was represented to the Jews and he had it brought to Jerusalem where, he, where his son Solomon was about to build the temple. And when they were bringing in the presence of God, so to speak, into Jerusalem, David danced with all his might before Paneum, the Lord. He, he's, he's in front of God in front of the presence of God, he's dancing with all his might. He danced so much so that it was embarrassing, which had to be a lot, right? Now, for us Montanans, a little bit of dancing is embarrassing, right? All right, this is awkward. But man, David was getting after it, and his wife, Michael, his first wife, Michael, criticized him, got after him, mocked him. And he had some choice words for her. And it sounds like maybe that was the end of their relationship for the rest of their lives. But David loved the presence of God. There's passion. Where's our passion? I want to talk about passion for a second to pursue God. There's a really uncomfortable scripture here. And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, okay, this is the book of Revelation. I don't have it up on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you. John, the apostle, is having this revelation. He's Jesus, the resurrected Christ, is instructing him, and these are the words he's writing down, and he's instructing them to write them to the churches. So this is at the end of your Bible, last book in your Bible, and Jesus is instructing John, he's saying, write these words down. 
and to the angel of the church of Laodicea, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation, all speaking of, of Christ. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I wouldn't want God saying that to me. But it is something that we read and we have to take heed of. You're writing to the church in Laodicea. By the way, there was an aqueduct here that went to Laodicea. I think I can't remember who, where it came from, where they had to transfer water because the water was toxic in Laodicea. And I think it was high mineral content. Anyway, I didn't, I didn't verify the details of that before I started talking about it, which I should have. But they, by the time it got there, it was warm water and it had a lot of bacteria and stuff growing in it. So when he's writing to Laodicea, they actually had a civil situation where this was a thing to them. So just a little behind the curtain kind of thing to understand. But this is what he said. I don't want you to, you're not hot. You're not, there's no passion here. You're just, eh, meh. You're not hot and you're not cold. I mean, we know what cold is. It's like back turned on, running away from, rejecting. And we know when people are hot, they're excited, they're, they're passionate, they're motivated. But he's saying you're not either one. You just, eh. You think you got it all together? You think you got it made? You think you're rich? Let's see what it says. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. And we could say that. In a way, we could say that, couldn't we, in our culture? We prospered. We don't need anything. We're, we're the wealthiest of the wealthy that have ever had wealth. We're the top 0.99999999% of wealthy people that have ever existed. We don't really, we aren't looking at starvation next week like a lot of people in the world and in history have. So we could relate to this, couldn't we? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wait, what? Us? We're that way? It's like you're lukewarm. I want to spit you out of my mouth. And so it's kind of, a, it's intense, it's uncomfortable, and I'm not necessarily saying that I think that's what God's saying collectively, but I think it's worth reflecting on. Because when things are just the same year in and year out and day after day and Sunday after Sunday and week after week, we get lukewarm. We go, meh, we're fine. And then something comes along and it shakes us. And we take inventory and go, wait a minute, have I lost my passion? Do I really want to seek the face of God? Do I want to experience God? Or am I okay in my little theological bubble and I'll just stay here? Or is God calling you to something more? A relationship with him. How do you do this? How do you seek the presence of God? Oh, there's so many ways. We saw it. Worship is one of the best. Just, it's just a setting aside the time to worship him and experience his presence. Because if God wanted to say something, that's a great place for him to say it to you. We can pray. We can read the scripture. And we don't read it like a text message. Let's read it more like we're, because we have the Spirit of God with us. Let's read it and talk to him about it. God, you said this. What do you mean, lukewarm? What do you mean with these things? We need that relational aspect. We need to look at his face. We need to be seeking him out, spending time with him. How do you spend time with God? He's right here. And I think it just starts with acknowledging God, I know you're here. I'm acknowledging that you're here. God, do with me what you will. 
and you start, God, work on me. Show me. Help me notice that you're showing yourself. I think the Spirit of God is speaking all the time, nonstop. He's constantly pushing on things in your life. We just have to stop to take the time to listen, to pay attention, to quiet ourselves and go, God, what do you say? And yeah, we're fallible and we get misinformation and we got the scripture, we got to guide ourselves by all those things. God is inviting you to seek his face. He can be found. He wants to be found. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a prayer and worship night. We're calling it Panim, which is the word we've been talking about, face, to be present with. We want to take some time. Just you don't, you don't have to go to a special event to be with God. But we collectively want to be with God. We want to seek his face. We want to invite him to examine us, first of all, individually. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And then lead me in the way everlasting. We need to invite God to examine us. We, want, we invite God to lead us, change us. If he needs to reform us, then reform us. God, and invite him to, to be at work in our, in our society, in our world that is struggling for hope right now. And we have answers. We have answers. But we need to be seeking his face, getting his guidance, inviting him to lead us. You, I would encourage you to be praying, be fasting. If you do that kind of thing, journal what God is stirring in your heart. Sometimes I journal things, and I'm not sure if it was God speaking or not. I just, I got that inclination, like, I feel like, well, I'll just write it down, and six months, year, two years, ten years later, you look back and go, wow, God was speaking in my life. God wants to be with us, not, not just for his sake, for our sake. And our, this whole story of redemption, what God has done, hinges on this thought. Let's seek his face. Let's seek his presence. Would you stand, please? Lord, we thank you that you can be found <laughs> and that you found us. Lord, you've called us. Lord, that we can boldly come before you. We can approach you not in arrogance, but in confidence, knowing that despite ourselves, you love us. Lord, I pray for all those that have their doubts about that and those things, even what I've said today. Those seeds of doubt, I don't measure up, not really sure God wants to be with me. I'm too messed up for God to want to be with me. That's why he wants to be with you. He wants to transform you. So Father, we, I ask that you'd lead each one of us to be a people as individuals and collectively that seek to experience you, to know what you're doing, to be in tune with, with what, you're, what you're saying and how you're leading us, collectively and individually. Lord, we bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.